Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Miracle Hour podcast. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, and I'm joined by good friend and colleague, Larry Kelly. How are you, Larry? I'm good, Jack. How are you? Very good. We got a special guest today, uh, Dr. Robert Owens from University of California, San Diego. Dr. Owens is here because he's a specialist in something we want to talk about, which is ICU delirium, what Larry sort of experienced when he was in a coma from COVID. Dr. Owens is sort of an expert in this area. He's a pulmonologist and an intensivist, work, meaning he works in the ICU. His, he also has a specialty in sleep medicine. He's a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego. And because, you know, in my search for all the experts and trying to read about and prepare for this, kept coming across his name and he was gracious enough to join us. Bob, it's great to have you. Thanks for the invite. Oh, yeah. So Thank I'm going to just briefly say um, that Larry, our audience knows Larry was, um, uh, let's see, he was intubated for like 53 days in a coma for like 42 in the hospital for 128. You know, that's sort of his COVID saga at Mount Sinai in New York City. Um, Larry, you, you know, crashed in the ICU. You almost died in the ICU and you woke up in the ICU. Do you want to fill in Dr. Owens with <laughs> what your recollection of the ICU was? Um, yeah, this, this is... Um... For me, this is going to be another interesting podcast. Um, I, you know, I have many more questions that I like to ask more than speaking about it. Um, because how how often do I get a chance to speak to somebody who actually studies this? Um, Bob, I do want to ask you. Uh, you know, what's funny is that you know I do some speaking now, not just sure. the podcast, but other speaking, and I, I consider myself. Um, an expert on delirium. <laughs> so I, I just, um, is is your focus, is it all COVID related or all types of ICU delirium? You know, all types of ICU delirium. So, so for those of us who've been interested in this idea of ICU delirium, I think it wasn't something, it wasn't really a concept that was out there very much before COVID. And because of your experience and many people like you, I think now delirium is something we're much more aware of, or certainly the public is much more aware of it. But yeah, even before COVID, people, about half the people on ventilators, half the people on medicines for shock uh, would experience delirium. And, uh, and we know that people who experience delirium, uh, they don't do as well as people who never experienced delirium. And it's also really interesting, like some of the things you're going to talk about maybe never actually happened to you, but you you still have like PTSD from things that maybe never happened, you know, they, they, they were in your head. So this is something that is out there, um, but it was probably much worse during COVID because people were on ventilators for really long times. They were really heavily sedated. Uh, and so I think you probably had you know, way more delirium, maybe worse delirium than other people who had sort of shorter stays in the ICU. Well, my my, my experience um, was entirely in my head, not partially in my head, mm -hmm. entirely in my head. Um, and what I I was conscious that I was in a coma. I was mm -hmm. conscious that I was in a coma from COVID. 
Um, and I spent much of the lucidity part of the coma um, distinguishing what was delirium and what was um, uh, reality, for lack of a better word, though I knew I was in a coma. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I always said, uh, I, I'm, I'm glad I have a sense of humor because mm. I was able to go, well, that was pretty weird. That's got to be delirium. That was pretty. I was like, right. I was. I, I looked at myself like, almost had an outer body experience in a coma. I was looking at myself in like almost a third person. Like, um, so there was a constant an, an analysis that went on inside me of: Is this real? Is this not real? Um, the uh, I, a lot of that I account to. Uh, I was I was vented so quickly um, that uh, as someone who likes to process things, I I, I wasn't able to um, process what was going on in such a short time. It was it was it was actually terrifying. It was actually um, very rapid. And and I so I went into the coma not in a very good mood, um, and so I attribute the, the negativity as a big part of the dark places that I went. Um, I I remember speaking to the hospital when I, I come home just briefly, and uh, you know months later, and telling them that I never associated them as a good hospital. In fact, I I thought from the get go they were trying to kill me. So I had that I had that um, feeling of dread, which I'm sure you uh, have a lot of patients that experience. That Jack had actually sent me a video from the Atlantic Magazine. What was the name of it, Jack? A waking nightmare for COVID patients. A waking nightmare, yeah. and it was people talking, and I, you know, they're like. I said to Jack, they're my compadres. I, uh, I, I understood everything they were they were experiencing. Um, what I tried to do, Bob, and maybe you can address this. I was, I was analytical enough to to try and associate. All right, where is that delusion coming from? And uh, I, I thought maybe, not maybe, but I. In my detective work, in my own mind, I, uh, I, I, I did find out that some things that were happening to me physically, I interpreted in a delirium way. Um, people ask me all the time, "Did you? You had lucidity? Did you hear things?" And I believe I heard very little, um, but I do believe that I felt much that they did to me. And and took that in a in a I, I describe it in a criminal mind's direction. It was it was you know I was constantly being tortured. So uh, that that was the hard part. Um, and I, like I said, I'm, I, I assume you hear a lot of that. Yeah, you know I think some of the stories we hear involve things that make sense when you dig a little bit deeper. So. You know, we often will put in IVs or draw blood from somebody's arm. And the the delirium part is that we are putting snakes on people's arms to bite them. Uh, 
Uh, we have people going into a CAT scanner and they think they're being pushed into an oven, you know, because that's so they're taking something that's real, but totally understand. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, and sometimes it's a lot of times it is dark, as you're sort of saying. I had one other gentleman, I was asking about his delirium experience, and he said every morning at five o'clock in the morning, an all Asian, all Asian women's basketball team comes and plays basketball in my belly. And that was the surgical team. It was a bunch of young residents who came, did their, you know, Jack, their pre-rounding at five in the morning, undid his bandages, and he thought they were playing basketball on his stomach. And so there's that element or that kernel of truth mm. uh, that gets misinterpreted. And, and again, sometimes it's it's and often that, dark. That's, that's, that, yeah, that's the imagination. And that, you know, it's... Uh, Jack, let me just, let me I, just I, have uh, a story. I have a story with my nurse. I'm very close to my admitting nurse, and we were out um, uh, at lunch, and I had a recurring um, delusion that I was uh, sexually assaulted and uh, anally. And uh, um, so I asked my nurse, I asked, you know. <laughs> not to sound vulgar, but I said, did you stick anything up my ass? And she said, uh, well, well, we stuck many things. Um, right, right. And and I, I started going, I knew it, I knew it, I, I knew it. I thought I was being, I thought I was being raped. I said, I knew it. And she said, uh, quite funny, but well, we laughed for 10 minutes. She said, well, you seem to enjoy it and you're alive, so it must have worked. <laughs> <laughs> That but, made all the difference. <laughs> but you know, which which seriously we laughed for like 10 minutes. I I that that's just one. There were there, there was another one of and I think this is when I was getting ported. Because I was ported on my over here. Um I mean putting an IV port into your subcutaneous tissues, right? Yeah. Uh, that they put the medication directly right, into right. some artery okay. or something. You know, right. everything went <laughs> into the port. Right. You know, yeah. Um and because I I had a massive delusion of uh that um there was a microchip being planted in me. And I had this whole, you know, and I was like seven years old, you know, I was like, you know, it was very strange. The uh but and what scared me is that when I came home, you know, I sort of went viral on the Internet. So there's all these comments written about me. So when I did the, the CNN interview online, people can comment. So I started getting trolled. You know, you're a liar. Your wife's a liar. Your kid's a liar. You know, blah, blah, blah. And one of them was. <laughs> and this blew me away because. This was one of my delusions. But one guy says, "Oh, the government stuck a microchip in your brain," and I was like, "What? What? 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 Did that actually happen? Did that actually happen?" So, you know, uh, so anyway, I there's no microchip inside me, not that I know of. But uh, I, but that <laughs> so was Bob, the, when I was reading about this and and a lot of the work around this, I kept writing down these descriptions: vivid, intense dreams, agitation, paranoid hallucinations experiences that were terrifying um and disorienting gruesome negative dark things where you're under attack delusions of sexual assault and how would you describe this icu delirium 
Well, I think it's really difficult for those of us who have never experienced it. I, but I think that what Larry's describing, I've heard from many different patients. And um, and a lot of times people are very hesitant to talk about it. You know, they don't, they, they think it's something they did wrong. Or, or as Larry said, you know, they have these memories and there is a kernel of truth there. So, you know, how do you, how do you approach that? I, I do want to emphasize one thing that you've done, Larry, like, you actually went back and talked to your admitting nurse. One thing we're trying to do, and, and there is a, a body of research on this, are these things called ICU diaries, right? Where nurses or family members can write down what happened to, to their loved one on that day. And then if you go through that diary, you can give some context to these really disturbing images. And, and so that is something that we're using at our institution uh, to try to give people a little bit of grounding afterwards and maybe take away some of the terrifying nature of this. But but Jack, as you said, I think I've heard everything. I've heard people say the last thing I remember is getting intubated in the emergency department. And then I woke up as I left the hospital and they don't remember anything. And then others, it, it can be really quite terrifying. Well, it, uh, in my case, I, I'm fortunate for lack of a better word. I, I don't think fortunate is the right word, but uh you know, my, my my story was sort of documented in so many different places that I was able to get so many different perspectives um, of actually what happened to me. I'm not only am I close to my admitting nurse, I I've been back to Mount Sinai several times. And, you know, I'm I'm sort of very well known in Mount Sinai <laughs> the, uh, yeah. because of my experience and how long I was there and the fact that I'm still here. Um which is sort of, um, given my symptoms, is very surprising to many people in the medical profession. Um, but but what I mean is that taking all those little pieces from people, I can sort of make sense out of it. I don't, I believe I have PTSD, though I don't know what it is, only because um, sometimes it's hard for me to get to sleep at night that, uh, I don't, I, I, I don't have delusional memories like that. Um, I do worry about having them, but I don't have them, but I still worry about having them. Um, the, uh, but sometimes when I feel myself going back there emotionally, um, I, I have a, a mechanism that I sort of just, you know, um, as my wife says, I'm very strong willed and I can, uh, if I went through it in there, being awake is a piece of cake, um, compared to, compared to what, what I went through in the coma. So the, this, I sort of look at it that way is that, you know, yeah, 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 you, you can't. I, I can't be frightened as much as I was when I was in the coma. And, uh, you know. So, Bob, and, what are the consequences of this ICU delirium for Larry or for others that go through this? I imagine there's a range. Yeah, there is a range. And um, there's also a, a spectrum of different consequences that people have coming out of the ICU. So, you know, may, maybe today you guys are talking about delirium, but I do want to highlight that when people come out of the ICU, they can have new problems with things like anxiety, depression, and PTSD. They can be physically weak. 
or they can have a lot of cognitive problems. You know, people can't balance their checkbooks or do the kind of simple things that they take for granted. And so, you know, Larry, the, the fact that you're called Miracle Larry, I get that. But one of my colleagues, you know, we call these people the the luckiest unlucky people out there. You know, I mean, you had this terrible thing happen to you. And yeah, like, hey, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you, but like, I'm sorry you had to go through that. And mm -hmm. and so I do think that the delirium and the story that you're sharing, it tells people, yeah, once you get out of the ICU, there's still a lot you got to get over. Um, and but but Jack, I would say that the things that we know specifically about delirium is that more people with delirium experience PTSD after the ICU. And and if the longer people have delirium, that seems to track with how their brains function at the end of that road. And those are the things that we, I think, as a field have not been that good about following people. You know, we say, hey, we, you know, Larry, I don't know about for you, but for others, like we would play music, we'd be clapping, we'd be all celebrating that we got you out of the ICU. But but there's still a road to go after that. And we're not, we're not real good as a system sort of focusing on that. Well, so I, and I told Jack that the, uh, Jack knows that, you know, about five months after I was home, I also have this, and uh, when I say burden, I don't mean it as an intense burden. I have this burden. Um, but th this, this, this miracle label has sort of forced me to be okay. Um, you know, I, I can't, what kind of miracle is it if I, if I, if I, if, if I have all these problems and I'm totally, you know, um, so Jack knows it's funny, but not funny, but five months after I was home, I was feeling very depressed first time in my life. Cause I'm always a fairly happy go lucky guy. So I was feeling, um, not clinical depression, but I was just blue. I was just blue a lot. Um, and there was this pressure, I said, to be a miracle, right? Um, so I, I got on the phone to call <laughs> to call psychologists. And it's a heart of COVID. It's five months. You know, this is February. And I'm calling psych February 21. And I'm calling psychologists and telling them, I, you know, I believe I have suicide ideation. I, I, you know, I may have suicide ideation. And um, they're telling me, well, we have an opening in June. Right. I, and I'm like, what? No, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> you don't understand. I, I'm very, I'm very depressed. And but they were so backed up in COVID that you couldn't even, I guess what I'm saying is you had to sort of deal with it on your own because you couldn't even get professional assistance because everybody was looking for professional assistance, you know. So, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of your your patients um go through that too, is that it was hard to get the mental health. And I was very surprised when I, when I started, when I came out of the coma and I was paralyzed from the neck down and there was, I had physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. Not one person came in to ask me how I was doing mentally. And that surprised me. And uh, the rehab center that I came from, they have actually instituted that as part of post therapy now they actually have included um, mental health um or mental therapy or whatever, whatever you want to say it you know um, yeah which that's good that that's good that's progress <laughs> I, I mean 
Larry, I don't know, and Jack, maybe in your research for this, you know, we started uh, an ICU recovery clinic to bring people like you back. And and part of it, I'll be honest, we don't totally know everything that we need to know about how people recover from the ICU. So we're often gathering information, but we we do screen people for anxiety, depression, insomnia, because I'm a sleep guy as well. And I think sleep is really important for all these things, PTSD. Um, so we look for these things, but it's because there's a need. People don't look for these things and they sometimes assume hey, you're just happy to be alive, right? Everything must be good because you're you're a miracle, you know? And so so we did start looking for that. And um, I'll tell you one other thing we did. I'm so glad to hear you go back to your hospital. You know, in the height of COVID, if a nurse worked three or four shifts in a row and went home and they didn't see the patient there anymore, they thought they died. And so they really thought that all the stuff we were doing was like futile. And so we we love it when our ICU survivors come back and and share their experiences with us, and we like to learn from them. Oh, Bob! When, when I went back better. to Mount Sinai, it was I, it was a year and a half after I was home, first time I was back, and uh, it was just by chance. I was my nurse. I knew she was working. I texted her and she come over, come over. But yeah, the the whole floor was lined up. Bob, and yeah, they were. Now you have to remember. You have to remember where I was, I was so early that everybody was dying. And I was like this hourglass. I was like this hourglass that was on this bed in the corner, you know, like the little girl. I always joke like Jessica that fell down the well. I became like viral around, you know, will he wake up? Will he wake up? You know, it was like, there was like pools all around the country, you know, the, uh, but but I, I was that, what I realized that I meant to them that I didn't realize it, and it's quite flattering, but I was the one bright spot. And so, you know, so they're all lined up and they're, they're, they're very tearful and they're, they're crying and they're misty and, you know, I'm crying and I'm thanking them for not giving up on me. And they're saying that, you know, that, I was the reason they kept going because I lived and, you know, and even if it was like one person and it gave them, because what you just said triggered that for me, what you just said about them feeling um, wasted that, you know, what they were doing wasn't having any consequence whatsoever. They go home to their family. They can't talk to their family. You know, that's what I've learned from nurses. We all went through, a warlike experience, really. I mean, it, you know, um, I relate us to Vietnam vets in terms of, you know, sometimes we like to just talk about other people that went through it and not, and you know. Um, go ahead, Jack. You were going to say. Right, I want you to um, tell Dr. Owens your story about um, getting a tracheostomy, meeting that doctor afterwards. So, Dr. Owens is a is a lung specialist and an intensivist. This is often a critical decision, the setup for delirium often is ventilation, being away from your family, being in the ICU, being on narcotics. You had all the the risk factors, Larry. You were the perfect storm to get this in many ways. But this issue of ventilation starts with the tracheostomy. So tell that story, maybe how you do, Larry. Bob, I do want to ask one quick question before I tell you the tracheotomy story. I want to ask you, are many of the deliriums triggered from the drugs. I mean, like 
drug addicts have deliriums too, right? Drug users, you know, and they, so I, I kept thinking because I was pumped so full of fentanyl, they had to wean me down on methadone. I was on the fentanyl yeah. for weeks that when they tried to lower the dosage, I went into withdrawals in a coma. The, uh, <laughs> so, so, the, the drugs. so I keep thinking, well, I mean, all that fentanyl, no wonder I am like delirious, you know, you know. The drugs are clearly part of it. And you mentioned the narcotics, um, but you know, the the benzodiazepine, the sort of Ativan-like uh, drugs, Verse said, we, we know that if you give anybody enough Ativan, um, you know, you'll you'll make them delirious. So so that's why that's why COVID was so bad. You ended up on a ventilator for a really long time, and we thought, and we still think it's important that you ride the ventilator and you're just kind of out. He was very um, and agitated, and they were giving him lots of those drugs. Yeah, and so so that's what made, like again, delirium was there before ICU recovery was there, but but just all the people, and then this perfect brew uh, of illness and need for mechanical ventilation and high doses <clears throat> of the drugs for long periods of time, you know, all came together. Oh my God! All right, so here's the story on the tracheotomy. I go okay. back to visit that same day, and. Uh, it was a year after I was home, a year and a half after I was home, I was still still had a little trouble walking. I still had a balance thing that, you know, I had to be, I didn't have to be catered to, but I just had to be looked at, you know, just, just to make sure I wasn't going to. And so my nurse is on one arm and my my doctor, the ice, the, the head of the ICU, um, she's on the other arm. So they're, they're escorting me around and I'm meeting people. So the man who did my tracheotomy, and I use first names. His name is Dr. Raymond. Um, tall Haitian man. The, the, uh, he was on the other side of the hospital washing up for surgery and uh, mm -hmm. heard I was in the building, left his patient and came over to see me. And when I heard that later, I said, what do you, what do you want, asshole? I said, get back to your patient. I said, <laughs> what am I, Beyonce? What am I, Beyonce? The... Uh, but he had to tell me this story and he came over to tell me this story. Now I have my nurse Jessica's on one arm and Dr. Murner's on the other. And uh, Dr. Raymond's in front of me. He said, Mr. Kelly, I came here just to tell you this. He said, Myrna called me over to do your tracheotomy. And he says, I came over and he's telling me this story. So, and he says, I came over and uh, you you." I look at all your charts and they're all extensive and I'm reading all this stuff. And I turn to Myrna and she's right here holding my arm, right? So I'm getting all this first person. It's crazy. But the, uh, she said, I said, she, he said, Myrna, what am I doing here? This man's gone. Hmm. And uh, she, he said, Myrna went, get the trachea out of me, get the trachea out of me, pointing her finger. And he said, why Myrna? I have other patients. It's a waste of time. This man's gone. And she went, give me a trachea out of me. Give me a trachea out of me. She's pointing her finger. And he says, Mr. Kelly, and he came over to tell me this. He said, I put my finger in your hand and I yelled, squeeze my finger. And you squeezed my finger and I gave you a tracheotomy. And he came over to tell me that story. He's misty. I'm misty. They're misty. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, you know what? I, it made me realize, Bob, that I'm here because everything just fell into place. If Myrna doesn't insist, he walks away yeah. 
I'm not here. If he walks away, I'm not here. You know, it's 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 pretty yeah. amazing actually. But the uh, but that was the trick. The guy who did my trick, and he came over. To, I said, "Now go back to your patient. Go go back to go wash. Go back to your patient." But so but again, I the the less I'll just say real quick. You know, I think you coming back, him seeing you, knowing how well you're doing, knowing your story. You know. That powers him for the next 10 patients or 100 patients or whatever that, so. you know, maybe he has so. some hesitation. So, that, you know, it, I makes me, place well, this- it makes me realize that, you know, as horrific as the experience that I went through, you know, some good came out of it. You know, I mean, I'd like to think COVID itself, I thought was going to be like after 9-11 when everybody was together, you know, that, that. That went out the window real fast, but the, uh, but I, you know, some some good did come out of it. I do feel like I went through that. Um, like you said, that doctor, and um, they also, Jack knows they they've also told me at Mount Sinai that they learned a lot from me because I was the the lone survivor. They they learned different ways to treat COVID because mm-hmm. whatever symptom I have, they treated the symptom. So if this happened to me, that whatever they did to treat that symptom, they did that to me. So you yeah. know, you were talking about taking the blood. Well, I I del- had delusions of those needles. I was actually dragged naked into a cold cement room and stuck with heroin and stuck with and with, with oh. all these people sticking me with heroin and uh, the. Uh, that's the way that's the way I interpreted all the needles they were sticking in me and stuff, you know. So yeah. well, Bob, let's end with this question uh that's sort of burning in my brain. Well, I got two quick one. When Larry tells um this some of these stories, they kind of go on and on and on. Is there a time distortion to some of these hallucinations, meaning that something that could have been plaguing him for a long period of time could have been seconds? Are we do we have any no any any feel for how long these really go on in the brains of patients who are, especially if they're intubated and sedated. Yeah, no, I, I think I that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I, I don't think we know, you know, I think that you could have one single experience that, you know, someone like Larry relives daily. And then there could be, there could be other experiences that happen quite frequently. So uh, you know, suctioning through an endotracheal tube or down a tracheostomy, some people actually find that, really painful. And we do that all the time. Um, and, and so I don't think there's so much to learn about delirium and, and how to ultimately treat it. I think right now, all we know is that we're trying to get people to recognize that it is probably natural and part of the process. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with Larry. We need to look for these symptoms of PTSD and these memories. We think that using the diaries to reflect back on what actually happened is helpful, um, but but that's where we are right now. You know, there's a lot more we need to to learn in terms of preventing this. And then if someone has delirium, trying to treat it so that instead of lasting for weeks or months, you know, maybe maybe shorter. But but there's so much we still have to learn. You want Jack, to speak to in the terms sleep? of the actual timeline, though, Jack. I I counted. You know, they told me it was 51 days. I counted 10 days. Yeah. But I'm also intelligent enough. To recognize that could be 10 minutes 
you know, not just because I counted 10 days. And when I spoke to Mount Sinai, it was the first time I spoke, it was on a webinar and it was two tables of doctors and nurses. And I was on a big screen. This I mm-hmm. just came home. So they wanted to talk about the coma, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and I said to them, right from the get-go, I said, I'm not saying any of this is fact. I'm just going to tell you my truth and you're the experts, you interpret it, because I don't know if any of this, you know, like I did say to them when they told me it was 51 days and I counted 10, I said, well, if we do simple math, maybe the patient is lucid 20% of the time. So my advice to you is that when you're around the patient, because I did hear, I remember hearing talk of death, and it maybe it was the Raymond story. Maybe maybe it was the Dr. Raymond time, because I remember trying to scream in the coma, I'm not dead. I'm not dead. And then crazy stuff, <laughs> crazy stuff, Bob. I gotta tell you. But then I had to question whether I was dead. And I questioned many times in the coma, well, maybe, maybe I am dead. Then I went into the whole the whole Nietzsche thing, you know. Well, I'm thinking, therefore right. I can't be dead because I'm thinking about being dead. So I can't be dead. You know? So Bob is a sleep guy. <clears throat> yeah. Um do you think sleep is responsible for most of this? You know, there's so many things that um that contribute to this delirium thing, but people that are in an ICU, in a coma, you know, on the said really stated. They really sleep, aren't they sleep deprived? And this and could this be a in many ways a major sleep disorder? Yeah, so so I think there's a couple good lines of evidence to say that sleep disruption and and shortened sleep contributes to delirium. I don't I don't think it's all of it, but but we know that if you focus on sleep in the ICU, you can reduce delirium by about 20%. Okay, so maybe one out of five patients who has delirium, we, we could prevent that by letting them sleep a little bit. Uh, the converse is true. If you try to stay awake for days and days and days, you will become delirious and start hallucinating and things like that. So I think sleep is totally uh, part of the story. I don't think it's all of it, but it's it's probably the only part that we can do something about. You know, we can't, I can't make COVID less, uh, you know, lethal or dangerous. If someone needs to be on a ventilator and they need these medicines, I mean, yeah, maybe we can adjust the medicines, but but sleep we actually could do something about. And trying to go in and wake somebody up every, you know, hour or whatever, every 10 minutes, because we want to go in and out of the room or we just want to have a lot of noise or lights or whatever, we we can prevent that and we should. And so that's why, you know, yes, as a sleep guy, but as a ICU doctor, I just think you know, wouldn't it be great if by just kind of playing some defense and protecting people's opportunity to sleep, we could reduce these kinds of, you know, dreams and nightmares? Well, Bob, as a as a human being, I've always been fascinated by the whole concept of sleep. I, you know, I just I don't I don't get it. I don't know why we <laughs> why we go through it. And, you know, I remember speaking to one of the nurses when I was getting my um, consciousness back and stuff and asking what the date was and playing, you know, over two months in my mind, I said, wow, I just lost two months of my life. You know, I looked at it that way. It's like, I don't know where two months went and it's just gone. But then I started going, 
had this whole sleep thing. Then I started realizing if I sleep eight hours a day, that's a third of my life that I've actually been asleep 22 years. You know, I've actually right. been asleep 22 years. You know? so, and, and that like blows me away. It's like, I don't even have to sleep. I don't even, you know, I, I, you you're, know you're I've in, never you're been in a big company. fan of sleep. So. Well, you're in good company. We, we don't really know why we need to sleep, but the fact that it is conserved across many animals and species and you've spent a third of your life doing it, um, <laughs> it's important, you know, and, and I think it's important for a lot of things. And as I said, it's just, when we think about delirium, there's a lot of things that are out of our hands, but, but sleep week, again, in, in, in clinical trials, when, when ICUs have said, we're going to promote sleep, you can see the reduction in delirium. And, mm. um, but it's just, you know, we just got to get that word out and, uh, and do that better as a, how, how do you pr- community. define promote sleep? How do you promote it? Uh, I mean, it's stuff that could be simple, could be complex. The simple stuff is just making sure that the lights and the sound levels are down at night so that there's actually a restful environment. Um, you know, uh, making sure that if a nurse does have to go in at nighttime, let's say to give medicines or check vital signs, like instead of going in, you know, multiple times, try to cluster the care so that there is a window of uninterrupted sleep. The last thing I'll say is, because it's the other side of the coin, but making sure people are awake during the day. Uh, And so I think we're actually bad about that, too, is I think we just leave people kind of sedated during the day. And I think we do need to wake people up, get them moving during the day. And so there's some good data that waking people up every day, doing physical therapy, that can reduce delirium, too. So it's a lot of different things, but it's like totally unsexy. It's not a silver bullet. It's not a medication. Right. So, you know, no big pharma company is going to promote it. It's like old fashioned nursing and TLC. And, and that's just it, it's hard me, to do that really well day in and day out. Let me ask you this. Um, if, are you finding this with certain patients? In, when I was in rehab, now I'm conscious, right? And I'm still not talking, but I'm still conscious. I and even when I came home, I didn't want to go to sleep. That I was having trouble. I was having trouble in that REM state right before you go to sleep because it was reminding me of going into the coma. So that's why when I say PTSD, that's what I went through for a while of having a hard time going to sleep because I didn't want to go to sleep. I, yeah. I was. I, I, I was I was hoping I would wake up, you know what I mean? I, I was, you know, so I went through that mentally in my head. Um, and I was just curious that, you know, you're promoting sleep, but I bet a lot of patients have trouble sleeping, right? So that, right? Yeah, I, I hear that a lot. You know, people, um, same as you, they're worried that the next thing they'll know, they'll wake up on a breathing machine. Um, I've had people Last time who, I yeah, I have people who, who, uh, probably have a little sleep apnea and they wake up and they're sort of coughing or choking, but it takes them back to, to being on the ventilator and needing to be suctioned. Um, so it, it is an issue. Um, I've, I've had, I've had several surgeries since I've been out and I've had to be sedated and that's the hardest part. I don't, I'm not afraid of the surgeries. I'm not afraid of the sedation is like, man. And I would say to the anesthesiologist, 
and you, you're going to promise I, I'm going to wake up, right? You're not going to, you know. So that's the hard part is just, you know, it, I'm, I'm sure a lot of patients have, have, so let's let's sleep end with let's end with um, a sleep specialist at a ICU intensivist giving the audience some suggestions for their loved ones who are getting out getting out of the ICU. What should they be yeah. doing? You know, how do they get their life back um, in the most complete way? What's what should they be doing that they may not be doing? Uh, those folks who are in an ICU for whatever reason, COVID or not. Yeah. Um, what would you suggest? I mean, I think that some of the stuff that you guys are talking about, you know, Larry, with your story and this podcast, I part of it is I just want loved ones to know that, yes, even though your loved one is lucky and made it out of the ICU, it, it doesn't mean that they're back to where they started. Um, and I think they need to recognize that there are going to be a lot of difficult adjustments um, and some of them are visible and some are not. Uh, and so so I, I just want to tell family members, like, don't expect that there may be things that are happening that, that you didn't expect. Um, and I also think family members should not uh, think that there's something wrong with their loved one. If they're not sort of bouncing right back to where they started, um, they you know should ask their doctors for help. Um, you know, there are resources to find some of these ICU recovery clinics around the country. A lot of them started because of COVID. And um, so again, I just want to, you know, be aware that there are these problems that people face after coming out of the ICU. And and some of them, yeah, you might need, uh, you know, a doctor or, or somebody who's kind of knows this story uh, to help you and your family member through that. It, it's, it's not something to minimize. It's not something to be silent about. And it's not something to try to figure out necessarily on your own. Yeah, I, you know, Jack, when Jack sent me that video of, from the Atlantic magazine, the, uh, <laughs> you know, I, had, I said, maybe my purpose is to, to start a, a support group, you know, like friends of Bill W, you know, friends of Miracle L, you know, friends of, you know, like just getting, sitting around a circle with, uh, and just talking it out because this podcast has been in, on a personal level for me has been incredibly um, helpful just for me as a, as a form of therapeutic um, examination of, you know, what I went through. Um, and I don't dwell on it. Quite frankly, I cannot say that, but it's with me every day. And I tell people I'm a strange combination of incredible strength, but I'm continuously aware of my own fragility. If that makes any sense whatsoever, like, Nothing frightens me anymore except how fragile I am. That uh, that makes sense, Bob? Does that, yeah. That... Yeah, I, I mean, maybe. Sometimes I worry. Am I making Jack, I would, I would finish up. By the way, Larry, I mean, it took us a long time to try the idea of support groups and, and people have done that for ICU survivors. Mm -hmm. uh, the only thing I would end with which is related to the delirium, but you know we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, Jim Jackson, who's a psychologist who's worked with ICU survivors, he talks about post-traumatic growth, and you know some of the stuff that you're saying and how you're putting yourself out there and the insight that you have. Um, you know, I, I mean, again, I think there 
that's what we that's what I love hearing are these stories of post-traumatic growth where people have gone through these incredibly difficult times uh, and yet, you know, gives them new insight, gives them new you know, vigor to go out and do stuff. And so, again, that's why that's why I agreed to do this podcast. I, I loved hearing your story. And I and I do get a chance as an ICU doc who sees patients come back to hear some of these stories. But we, we got to get it out there a lot more. Oh, Bob, thank you for coming on, Jack. You, you, you've, thank you for finding him. Thank you. Yeah, he's <laughs> yeah. a gem. Bob, thanks for adding to the story and really enlightening our audience and certainly enlightening Larry and I. This has been a lot, really helpful and fun, a lot of fun for us. So Bob, many thanks I, and I, bless I, you. Before you go, I, thank you. I, 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 I speak to a lot of, uh, a lot. I've spoken to terminal patients and uh, I feel very comfortable at their bedside, which is very, but I, I, I'm offering my services if you ever need me to talk to anybody, if you have a patient that would like to video and uh, yeah, yeah, be welcome to give them my my information. You can get it from Jack, and uh, you know I'm willing be, to talk it, to it, anybody. So it can be part That's of his PTSG. All right, <laughs> there you go. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Jack. Thank, Thank you, you, Dr. Owens. Take care.